Hi, I'm Asia Raiden. I'm the author of The Truth About Lies, The Illusion of Honesty, and The Evolution of Deceit. Sort of a micro-history of con artistry, but what it really is is a history of deception in the sense that each chapter is about a different fundamental con, like a pyramid scheme or a bait-and-switch or snake oil, and how it works on your mind, on your brain, on your body, on society. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. Asia Raiden was a guest on the podcast five years ago discussing the history of jewelry in her book, Stoned. Her new book from St. Martin's Press is titled The Truth About Lies, The Illusion of Honesty, and the Evolution of Deceit. Asia says her book is a history of con artistry and of deception itself. Let's start with uh, your interest in jewelry. Diamonds. You say diamonds are a long con. You've used that word a couple of times. You mean as in confidence game? Yes. The long con is the last chapter in the book because it's the most elaborate type of con that, or swindle or scam that people can sort of impose on other people. Because, And it's the most complicated because it involves many of the other traditional scams that I explore in this book. And diamonds are, I think, the gold standard for long cons. A long con is when not one con artist, but many con artists work together to actually alter your experience of reality in significant ways, real ways, that then in the long term can turn out to have been absolutely false. Or in the case of diamonds, which is a little bit scarier, can have worked so well on so many people, it changes some of the factual information. Because diamonds in and of themselves aren't worth anything. Western civilization has been convinced over the last hundred years that they are by the De Beers Diamond Cartel and an advertising agency they hired, and then ultimately groupthink and social economics. And now we all want diamonds, and the prices are exponential. And so this con has actually changed some of the facts of reality around us. They are expensive, and we do want them, which was the Uh, original lie. I think you said something like diamonds aren't real, but but they are real. I mean, they're they're pretty stones, but they shouldn't be valued so highly. Is that the uh, uh, idea? That was the idea behind my first book, Stoned. Why do people value what they value? Why are certain things worth so much money? And in the case of diamonds... It's not really a natural phenomenon that we've arbitrarily chosen something and given it an exalted value. That happens with a lot of things, a lot of gemstones. In the case of diamonds, a colonialist named Cecil Rhodes went to South Africa at the beginning of the diamond rush, and when he couldn't build the railroad he wanted to build, he started buying up and stealing and bullying people out of their diamond claims until he held most of... 99% of the diamond mines in South Africa. And then he merged with the man who had the other 1% because it was a really good one, and they formed the De Beers Diamond Company. But the diamond rush just kept rushing, and it never actually petered out. We still dig up so many diamonds every year that there is a glut in the international market that's incredibly economically dangerous at this point. There's far more diamonds than anybody wants or can buy. So these men, they had this great idea, we'll just lie about it. The first chapter in my book is about the big lie, when you just tell a lie so big and so crazy 
that people believe it because mm. no rational, sane person would lie about that. So a big lie actually works in tandem with your sanity and your sense of reality and your, your understanding of objective fact, not in opposition to it. And it's why it's such a corrosive type of lie. And the first stage of their long con was to employ a big lie. They just lied and said, there aren't very many diamonds. I don't know where you heard that. They're incredibly scarce. We only get a handful out of every giant mine. You know, we destroy a square mile of ground and we get this one diamond. The truth is they have wheelbarrows full of them. They just lied to everyone about it, and everyone believes them, because who would lie that big? And there are diamond mines now in other parts of the world, right? They're everywhere. The biggest diamond mine in the world is in Russia. One of the biggest and most productive diamond mines in the world, Argyle, is in Australia, and they just shut it down last year because it was turning out too many diamonds, and the prices were falling, and like I said, there's this huge glut in the market. Hmm. And so after they convinced everyone that diamonds were very scarce, World War II happened, and the people they had been selling diamonds to were gone, or they were impoverished. There were no more tea parties with diamond tiaras in England. There were no more Romanovs to buy giant diamond paperweights. They didn't have any customers because the money had all shifted to the U.S. But because of the GI Bill and the New Deal, it had been dispersed among millions of people. So nobody had money for a tiara. They had a little bit of money, and they didn't really want to spend it on diamonds. And De Beers was blocked from doing business in the United States because of antitrust laws that we still observed. And so they hired an advertising agency to help them with this. And their first move was sort of a bait and switch. They said it doesn't matter where they buy a diamond. We don't need to do business in the U.S. because all diamonds are De Beers diamonds. We own all the mines at this point. We just need them to buy a diamond, because whoever's selling a diamond bought it from us at some point. And so the advertising company said, well, that's great. We can do that. We just need a product they can afford, these new, newly emergent middle-class families all over the U.S. Mm-hmm. And so they invented the diamond engagement ring, which just had one relatively small diamond in it. And then after they invented the diamond engagement ring, they invented all of what we think of as modern advertising. Mm-hmm product placement. It's why there are so many movies from the 40s and 50s and 60s where you see diamonds and you see diamond rings and you see proposals. You know, gentlemen prefer blondes and breakfast at Tiffany's and there's always a diamond or a jewelry store. It's because De Beers paid for that so that people would associate them with glamour and romance and movie stars and they gave them to movie stars for free so they would wear them places and they basically engineered a psychological operation in the U.S. that was so effective, people forgot it happened. And when you ask people now about diamond engagement rings, they just assume that's a thing that has always existed. They don't realize it's the same age as the microwave oven. <laughs> Asia Radin's uh, book is called The Truth About Lies. Let's just move on to some other uh, scams, if you will. I was fascinated to read about the Mona Lisa. Apparently, the Mona Lisa hanging on the wall of the Louvre in, in Paris may not be the Mona Lisa painted by Leonardo da Vinci? It, it may or may not. Yeah, it was stolen at one point, And it was a very strange theft because the person who stole it got away with it. Uh, security was, was not as tight back then. And um, this was over 100 years ago. And his name was Perugia. He was an Italian... Um, 
maintenance man, custodian at the Louvre. And one night, he took it off the wall, hid it under his coat, and walked out with it. It's not very big, if you've ever seen it. And it worked. He stole the Mona Lisa. The Mona Lisa wasn't as famous back then, either. And it shocked the whole world that somebody stole a painting from the Louvre. And they looked for it, and they looked for it, and they looked for it. And they didn't find it until a couple years later, for no reason at all, after keeping it hidden in the floorboards of his apartment in Paris for several years, he walked into the Uffizi Gallery and tried to sell it, which was a crazy thing to do, because everyone knew it was stolen. And they, of course, turned him in, and the painting went back to the Louvre, and you think that's the end of the story. But mm-hmm. it's not the end of the story, because in that span of time, and actually before that span of time, what was going on in America was that a con artist from South America had worked his way into wealthy circles of art collectors. And he had told a number of people, very privately, that he was going to have the Mona Lisa stolen. He told them that they could buy it from him, but to be quiet about it because it was stolen. He said that he was going to be in possession of it within a year or two. And, of course, he got quite a few offers for huge amounts of money, and he said, the only thing is you can't show it to anybody. You can't tell people you have it or you'll go to prison, and then you'll tell on me and I'll go to prison. And, and he made this arrangement, and they said, yeah, if you manage to steal something from the Mona Lisa, sure. If you manage to steal something from the Louvre, sure. But nobody really thought he was going to do it. And then, to their surprise, in the news, the Mona Lisa disappeared from the Louvre, and they went, oh, my God, he did it. But really, he had had a famous art forger named Yves Chardon the whole time working on forgeries of the Mona Lisa. And when these individual people who didn't know each other, or if they knew each other, didn't know that their friends had been told the same story, they just assumed, that's it, he stole it, and waited for him to deliver it. His his con was a bait-and-switch and a forgery, and when he delivered these forgeries, they paid huge amounts of money, and they were already in the U.S., so it's not like he had to sneak them past customs, which would have been impossible with the paintings stolen. And those paintings are all still at large, and when uh. it was over, he told them he was going to have a forgery returned to the Louvre so that the heat would be off. And that's right, right exactly when Perugia took the real painting, supposedly, to the gallery, got himself caught, which makes a lot more sense in that context. And a painting went back to the Louvre and everybody calmed down. But the odds that he had 12 perfect replicas and he took back the real one are actually pretty low, especially because he ran the same con again decades later and he still had a painting. And he said, no, of course I kept the real one. Do you want to buy it? (laughs) So So it goes on forever. Yeah, it's unclear whether he returned the real one or a fake. But there are his first six sales, which were confirmed, and decades later, another six sales. So there are probably about 12 fraudulent Mona Lisas in private collections that people believe are real. And one of those fraudulent Mona Lisas is very likely in the Louvre itself. Asia Radin lives in Santa Fe, New Mexico. She studied ancient history and physics at the University of Chicago, worked at the House of Khan auction house. Uh, She was senior designer for a Los Angeles jewelry company 
And her latest book is called The Truth About Lies. Uh, Let me just bring up a couple of other uh, items from your uh, book. Uh, Tell us about Gregor McGregor of Scotland and the big lie. He invented kind of a of a country, a, a country uh, back in the 1820s? Yeah, he did. So Gregor McGregor was sort of a soldier of fortune, and he was from Scotland, and he went to South America. And this was around 1810, 1811. By the 1820s, he was done with it, because, you know, like a lot of uh, tapped-out aristocracy, he had a big name, but he had no money, and he thought he would go to South America and make a fortune, or find a fortune, or steal a fortune. And when he came back, it seemed he had done that, because he came back, the Kazik of Poyais, the sort of the prince of Poyais, and he had, he had some dressed-up locals with him, he had botanical samples, he had a book someone had written about the country of Poyais mm-hmm. called Captain Strangeways, the author in the end, he was Captain Strangeways. He wrote the book himself. But he also had a document that said he owned the country now because, <laughs> though it's, it's not terribly respectable, he had gotten the local potentate blind drunk and swindled it away from him, and the man had signed it over. And with his new country, this tropical paradise in South America, he was looking for colonists. And people believed him because, like I said earlier... The problem with a big lie is that it works in tandem with a functioning sense of reality. It's actually more likely you'll believe someone if you told them you have an island than if you tell them you have a boat. Because if you told me you had a boat, I might question that. (laughs) Maybe he does. Maybe he's bragging. Maybe he's trying to impress me. I don't know. But if you said you had an island, I would assume you wouldn't say that out loud in front of people or on the radio if it weren't true because that's something people could easily find out. And that's an interesting thing about the big lie, is that the bigger and more ridiculous it is, the more believable it becomes. And so he came back to England with Captain Strangeway's book and this document and all these stories about the country of Poyais, and he was looking for colonists. And the first thing that happened was the king made him Sir Gregor McGregor to make sure the colonies stayed loyal to England. And then he was floated a huge amount of credit at a respectable bank. He got people to buy estates plantations, um, the rights for certain kinds of imports and exports. He even got people to change all of their money into what he said was the currency of Poyais that he had printed himself in exchange for British money, because they weren't going to need it anymore in their new life there. And the most messed up part of this whole story is he let ships full of colonists, once he had driven the bond price to something like the equivalent of $4.2 billion on the open market, for shares in Poyais, he had let all of these colonists who had spent every penny they had, rich ones, poor ones, all of them, get packed onto ships and sail off into the ocean to go to Poyais. When Poyais never existed, he made the entire thing up. He had never been there. He had never seen it. There was no drunk potentate that he swindled out of a country. He just made it up. So they were basically on ships to nowhere, going to die, which he assumed would be convenient for him because then no one would tell. The problem was when they got there, they looked for land, and what they found was the Mosquito Coast, which is so inhospitable, it's still unoccupied (laughs) today. It's undeveloped today. It's near Nicaragua. And of the hundreds of colonists who showed up in the first few boats, a handful survived 
it was really, there were no hostile natives when they got there. There were none at all. There was no food. There was no water. There were mosquitoes with diseases. Most of them were dead when the last handful, several people, got rescued by a passing British ship going from Belize. And they took them back to England. And the scariest part of this is, when they got back, they defended him. They didn't say, we were rooked. Everyone died. There was no poieus. They said something happened to it. Somebody must have lied to him. It must have been competing agents. Or maybe the captain, who's dead now, took us to the wrong place. They just could not be convinced. That they had been lied to, and that he was sending people nowhere, wow. which tells us something interesting about the way people believe big lies. It's easier to convince someone of a lie than it is to convince them they've been lied to once it happens. Anyone, any lie is easier to convince than to convince that same person, no, that was never true and you believed it. Yeah, yeah. You have to change your whole outlook if you... Exactly, and that's called cognitive dissonance. And that's a very uncomfortable neurological state for people to be in when they have two conflicting sort of load-bearing beliefs. Uh, Gregor McGregor was this uh, former aristocrat kind of down in his luck. He can sort of see him getting involved in this uh, kind of scam. But tell us what was going on in Battle Creek, Michigan, with Dr. John Kellogg, the man who, uh, I don't know if he invented cereal, but he uh, he started a wellness movement, which also was not real? He started a wellness movement during the height of America's first opioid crisis. And that happened at the end of the 1800s, around toward the turn of the century. At that point, it was so easy to get morphine, heroin, cocaine, and a, you could buy cocaine and a syringe from Sears and Roebuck. It was the beginning of really intense pharmaceuticals. Nothing had been regulated. These drugs were sold for babies who were teething. They were sold for women who were annoying. They were sold for everything. People smoked cocorettes, which were cigarettes full of cocaine that were supposed to make you think better. And it also caused a lot of heart attacks. Ultimately, what happened was by 1888, approximately, something like, I think it was one in 15 people Uh, One in 15 white women were medical heroin addicts, meaning they got it from a pharmacy, or or they got it legitimately, but they were absolutely, you know, strung out drug addicts. And the numbers were not much better for men, and they were a little lower for not white people because these things were fun and expensive. In response to that, something called the wellness movement started, and it was pioneered by this guy, Dr. Kellogg, like you said, the guy who invented breakfast cereal. And he had all of these ideas about health most of which sprung up in opposition to this era of relentlessly advertised pharmaceuticals that anyone could have, sort of like now we have Ask Your Doctor. If it, then it was just on magazines, on posters, on everywhere. And it was like, are you kind of tired? Go get some cocaine. And he thought, this is terrible. He wanted people to be clean. But the guy clearly had a little bit of a, I'm going to say, disorder, because he was obsessed with purity and clean living to the point where he thought 15-gallon-a-minute enemas were necessary for all of his clients. And he invented something called continuous bathing, where you had to get clean, but it took days. And he started in Battle Creek, Michigan, something called the Battle Creek Sanitarium, which was not just the place where he was, and you could sit and listen to him like a guru tell you all of these things about how healthy you were going to be while you did crazy things. You agreed 
to an intensely monitored diet. He had something like electroshock therapy that he invented. He called it sinusoidal current therapy, and he made the device out of an old phone. Basically, it electrocuted people slightly. He was a vegetarian his whole life, and he was celibate through his entire marriage because he also had some very weird ideas about sex. So it was sort of a mashup of what we would now say are good ideas. Maybe don't take all those hard drugs and don't eat crappy food. But then he married it with a lot of not-so-great ideas and some really intense obsessive-compulsive disorder. And what was happening to the people who were there was absolutely abusive, but they were paying a fortune for it. And that was the beginning of what's now big wellness, where you pay someone like Gwyneth Paltrow a fortune to tell you crazy things and then give you something that will probably hurt you. And it's amazing that it sprung up in opposition to all of the hardcore snake oil and hard drugs out on the market, they were like, no, there's a second way and we're going to be healthy. When they were just as crazy and engaged in something that was just as much a money-making scheme as anything that was going on in the other direction. These are all very interesting stories, but why should we believe you? You shouldn't. That's sort of the takeaway from the book is that not that you shouldn't believe things you read in a book, but that you're going to anyway. That's actually an important part of what the book is about, is that human beings have this illusion of reason that we like. We think we think about things, but we don't. One of the most fundamental traits we have in terms of what we believe and what we don't is something called an honesty bias. And when you think about it, the vast majority of anything you know, you know because somebody told you, or you read it in a book like this one, or you saw it on TV, or you went to school and you learned it, and then you never thought about it again. Somebody said it and you believed it. That's because an honesty bias, which is one of the primary biases, like authority bias or all of the things that sort of affect the way we think, honesty mm-hmm. bias is the most intense. And it means without any sort of tension, without any sort of evidence to the contrary, that makes you stop and go, well, but, you know, you're telling me it's 3 o'clock, but it's dark out, so I'm going to think about it. Otherwise, when you ask someone what time it is, you just believe them. They give you an answer and you believe it. And this sounds incredibly stupid, that one of the major biases that circumscribe human thought is the tendency to believe anything we're presented with is true. But it actually makes us formidably intelligent as a group. It's why humans are humans. It's why we talk. It's why we write. It's why we talk on phones. It's why we build houses, because each one of us has the capability to lie, but also to believe lies and to believe information without discovering it for ourselves. I didn't have to invent the wheel. I didn't have to invent the alphabet. I didn't have to invent the printing press. Somebody else did all of those things, and I just wrote a book because I believed all of them were true when I was presented with them. If you had to start from scratch, every human, we wouldn't have society. We wouldn't have civilization. True, you got to believe something. What we do is we function as a sort of larger super brain by believing everything that we're told and everything that came before us, and it allows us to function in a sort of hive mentality we don't even see. There's, uh, and I don't know how to enter this example, but I've, I've appreciate your book because I'm an old radio guy and kind of familiar with the Orson Welles story and his radio play, The War of the Worlds, which uh, scared uh, the East Coast of America. There was a Martian invasion, but I didn't know there was a British radio play from 1926 that kind of did the same thing. Yeah, it was the BBC Radio Panic Hoax. And it was just a little bit earlier, and 
it had one of those blink-and-you'll-miss-it disclaimers at the beginning that, you know, this isn't real. One wonders why somebody wants to bother with a radio broadcast that isn't real if their intention isn't to deceive people, which is why those disclaimers are always so brief. And what they said was that there was a riot in London, and over the course of the hour, it escalated with radio broadcasters terrified and saying, you know, they've blown up Parliament, Big Ben's in the river, and people are being hung from lampposts. And, of course, the rest of England heard it and became hysterical and demanded, you know, the Navy be called in, and they go put down the riot and save these people. And, of course, by then the radio show was over. And this goes back to, you, it's really impossible to make people believe they've been lied to most of the time. It took days to convince these people that nothing was happening, that it wasn't real. And the more they tried to convince them, the more wound up and hysterical they became, thinking, no, those must be the people that seized the government. They're lying to us. Why won't they go put down this riot? Because once, once you're in it and you believe it, it changes your whole frame of reference and you start to think about things in a rather conspiratorial way. And that's how hoax belief works. And the worst of it is the more people who believe a hoax, the more powerful that lie becomes. And you have this entire mob of people who are reinforcing each other's hysteria. A hoax is a type of lie that works on an entirely emotional basis. So if the lie itself isn't sort of bizarre, like Martians have landed in New Jersey, or a mob has destroyed London, or whatever it's not really going to work because it won't get spread around virally the way it needs to because it, it's not interesting enough to people. It's not scaring them or exciting them or freaking them out. But that kind of lie, when it's spread, you hear it and you want to hear more and you want to tell it, whether it's, you're not going to believe this, it's amazing, or this is the worst story I've ever heard, I have to tell someone, it's so stupid. Either way, you spread it like a germ until everyone's heard it. And then it becomes like a tidal wave where people are just scaring each other. And that's what happened with the War of the Worlds. Most people think it was just a little hoax, but actually it wasn't just the East Coast. People were panicking and rioting in San Francisco and mm. in the Deep South, and it was all over the country, and people died. People had heart attacks. People had strokes. People committed suicide because they didn't want to be captured or killed by Martians. It was a big deal, and again, it took the better part of a week to convince most people nothing happened. It was a lie. Well, we're almost out of time. How do you live your life from here? Do you believe anything anymore? Well, absolutely. You have to, or like I said, civilization crumbles. We have to believe each other if we're going to continue to function as this, this hive mind with every other human living and dead who has ever had a thought about anything which is what we do without realizing it. It's what made us the dominant species on Earth, the fact that anything anyone has ever thought is accessible to me, not because they wrote it down, but because I have the capacity to just believe things I'm told, and so do you. So what's important to know is that if you believed a lie, if you've been swindled or conned at some point in your life, or you fell for something really dumb in retrospect, you're not stupid. There's nothing wrong with you. Most of these lies work in really specifically engineered ways, like card tricks or shell games, to exploit loopholes in our cognitive processes. And if your brain is functioning correctly, you're going to fall for them a lot of the time. And actually, the hardest people to lie to are people who are already insane or 
have some sort of um, handicap. A card trick doesn't work on a blind person, for example. If mm. everything's working perfectly, you are most vulnerable to falling for most of these fundamental lies because that's how they were designed. And you shouldn't feel bad about it, but you need to be more open to believing that maybe you were lied to, and that's very difficult. But that's, that's the most honest thing anyone can do for themselves is accept that they fall for lies all the time and they tell lies all the time and they need to revise their thinking on things when new information arises. Asia Raiden is author of The Truth About Lies, The Illusion of Honesty, The Evolution of Deceit. Asia says her book is a history of con artistry and of deception itself. You've been listening to The Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore.